Short Rounds. Hi, y'all, and welcome once again to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope you're hungry or thirsty or, well, whatever, because today I'm talking all about military rations, all about how soldiers ate and drank in the Crimean War. Short answer, badly and way too much. So our Crimean War series is over, and today we're going to wrap it all up with a couple of postscript short rounds, stuff I didn't have time or room for in the main series. The other short round, Lord of the Caucasus, is about the Caucasian Wars, Muslim resistance to the Russian conquest of the Caucasus throughout the 19th century. It's on the feed, check it out. But this short round is about the food, the ration strength, and the drink, the liquid courage, of soldiers in the Crimean War. What was a British, French, Ottoman, or Russian ration? How often did they get it? What else did they eat? And how much did they drink and why? And how were the rations of the Crimean War actively changing as a result of the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of preservation, military organization, modern logistics? If what you are is what you eat, well, the soldiers of the Crimean War were changing in one of the most fundamental ways. What was going into their stomachs? Let's find out all about the food and drink of the Crimean War. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There is some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources are still on my website under the big Crimean source post. If you want to know where I got my info, that's where. Finally, any errors, misrepresentations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Okay, so you can't see it, but I have a prop today. I have an MRE, a meal ready to eat, the common U.S. Army field ration in the 21st century. You can buy them for stupid prices, but for me, these things aren't hard to get. I'm active duty. I have this to establish like a contrast, a baseline, to compare the rations of the Crimean War. So let's see what we've got. All right, let's see. Okay, this is um, menu number two, beef and barbecue sauce. I'm okay with this one. Some folks don't like it, but it's not that bad. Unlike some of them, this stuff is actually edible cold. Let's see what we got. We got the beef and barbecue sauce, 300 calories, 70 calories from fat. Uh, We got some black beans and a seasoned sauce. Thank the Lord, a seasoned sauce, 130 calories. Some flour tortillas, 220 calories. I'm lying. I just ate ate those, these right before I started this episode. Um, an oatmeal cookie, 280 calories. I'm probably not going to eat that, honestly. And yeah, boy, the gold standard of MRE food. Cheese spread with jalapenos. Don't laugh. This thing is currency out in the field. People will trade candy bars for this stuff. It's one of the only you know tolerable things you can put on your crackers or bread. And a little packet here containing some instant coffee, some creamer, some Splenda, some salt, a couple of gum pieces, a moist towelette, and some napkins. Alright, so if you didn't know, this is generally what a soldier eats when he or she is in the field. Your MRE. Around 1150 to 1200 calories, give or take. Oh, I forgot the uh, the drink mix. The fruit drink mix. It doesn't actually taste like any kind of fruit. It tastes like, uh, it's orange flavored. No fruit juice. 130 calories. It tastes like it's Kool-Aid. So it's like I said, around 1150 to 1200 calories, give or take. Full of vitamins and nutrients. Heavy on carbs and fat for short-term bursts of energy. Now, granted, this ain't no home-cooked meal. You eat these things for a long enough period of time, you're going to have some digestive issues. But it's got plenty of calories, plenty of nutrients, and while it doesn't taste great, it could be a lot worse. It could be Crimean War rations in the mid-19th century. A soldier's got to eat. It's the most fundamental requirement of any military. 
Good rations equal good morale, good energy, capable soldiers. Bad rations or inadequate rations mean the opposite. Every army in history has to worry about food, and for most of them, especially pre-modern armies, it was the consideration, one of the determining factors of their entire strategy. For most of history, I think I've said this before, Armies were usually supplied with food from local sources, just because they couldn't be supported over a long distance, either by government acquisition, purchasing, or just taking it, this is mine now, good luck. This local supply was how Alexander's, Caesar's, Hideyoshi's, and even Napoleon's armies supplied themselves most of the time. Trying to invade an area without local supply, like Hideyoshi did in Korea or Napoleon did in Russia, could be disastrous. But when it comes to the Crimean War, with hundreds of thousands of soldiers concentrated in and around Sevastopol, local supply was not going to cut it. The Crimea could not come close to supporting all these armies. So the Allies had to ship in their food from outside by sea, and the Russians had to ship theirs overland from Ukraine. All the armies on the Crimea depended on government-supplied rations to feed their soldiers. So what did these rations look like? Let's start with the army I have the best sources for. The British. In the modern day, the U.S. Army soldier, when he's not eating MREs, or she, receives a food stipend, BAS, Basic Allowance for Subsistence. But the British Redcoat was issued a daily ration, and that cost was deducted from his pay, because the British soldier was cannon fodder food for powder. This ration was, per regulations, a pound of biscuit and three-quarter pounds of beef or pork per day. Period. Biscuit and beef. Anything else, salt, rice, vegetables, coffee, sugar, came from his paycheck. Guys, bread and meat is not a nutritionally complete diet. Not this complete breakfast. And the quality was usually poor. The flour was mixed with chalk or sawdust by cheap suppliers. And one of the big things about military rations pre-19th century is that preservation and refrigeration weren't a thing. So fresh meat had to be transported to the Crimea on the hoof and slaughtered on site. Or big packages of salt beef, nasty and, you know, just these crates for weeks or months, had to be transported to the Crimea. When the cow was slaughtered, the remains were just thrown wherever, so you have a bunch of gutted cow carcasses just adding to the general Crimea vibe. So basically a box of hardtack biscuit and nasty meat from God knows where, bon appetit. The lack of nutritional value in this diet caused issues. Back in Britain, soldiers would supplement their food with vegetable gardens, you know, and locally purchased stuff. But with a diet that consisted of only bread and meat and very few ways to get anything else, the British soldiers around Sevastopol started to get scurvy, the result of a lack of vitamin C, which can cause gum disease, internal bleeding, you name it. Nutritional deficits are a huge buzzkill, right? The Royal Navy had figured out the cure for scurvy ages ago. Lemon juice or lime juice would usually fix the issue. But the British Army's supply system was not prepared for radical ideas like nutrition and dietary needs. Nearly 20,000 pounds of lime juice arrived at Balaclava during the winter of 1854-55 and sat on the docks because no one knew it had arrived and no one was looking for it. Amazing. One British soldier who had been suffering from scurvy wrote to his father on January 8th, 1855. We have been living on biscuit and salt rations the greater part of the time we have been in the field. Now and then we get fresh beef, but it is wretched stuff, not fit to throw to an English dog. I have been literally starved this last five or six weeks. There were stories from some of these camps about a hardtack being thrown into the streets, and even the rats wouldn't eat it. The rat comes up to it like, ugh, 
no, and just runs off to find something else. That's pretty bad. So yeah, these British soldiers were often on half rations. The rations they got weren't great, and they usually didn't get the complete ration during the winter, without a lot of the nutrition the body needed. The bread and meat combo wreaked havoc on their digestive systems, and the hard biscuits were especially painful for men whose gums were softened and bleeding from scurvy. Then there was the problem of preparing the food. Many British soldiers had literally never cooked for themselves, didn't know how to convert raw meat and biscuit into a palatable meal. Every British soldier was basically handed this stuff and told, good luck, and lots of malnutrition problems came from the lack of training in cooking the food. If British rations were bad, Russian rations were, you guessed it, worse. Big clumps of raw meat and biscuit aren't great, but at least meat contains lots of calories and biscuits have carbs. The Russian soldier usually lived off of thin cabbage soup and buckwheat porridge. Meat was almost absent from the Russian rations. Fresh fruits and vegetables were virtually unavailable, so scurvy was a big problem in the Russian army as well. Then there was corruption. Russian officers would skim off the ration fund for their own personal uses, and this left their soldiers even hungrier. Russian soldiers were often on the verge of outright starvation. Says you might have guessed, because it's kind of the general rule for the Crimean War. The French did relatively well. On paper, French rations had half the raw calories of the British rations, with a third as much meat, but a more efficient supply service meant that they were actually getting their full ration. Every French regiment also had a baker and a team of cooks who prepared bread and soup for the unit as a whole, as opposed to the British soldier being handed his individual hunk of meat and biscuit. This was a much more well-organized way of preparing the food, collectively. The French were also given small cakes of dried vegetables, kind of like like looking like ramen noodles, but these were dried vegetables. A recent French innovation that could be boiled in soup to round out nutritional needs. The French soldier lived off soup. French rations included some bread, meat, rice, sugar, and they always had coffee. One French dragoon said, Coffee, hot or cold, was all I drank. Apart from its other virtues, coffee stimulates the nerves and sustains moral courage. It is the best defense against illness. I can't say I disagree with them. I have a cup of coffee in front of me right now. Also, unlike the British, the French were excellent foragers. They would eat anything. Frog legs, tortoise eggs, rats. If it ran on four legs, it was food. The Russians and French both had this common skill of scrounging up edibles from out of nowhere, while the British didn't seem to have had that same skill. I think the key reason is that unlike the French or Russian soldier, a lot of the redcoats in industrial Britain tended to be city dwellers. They didn't have the peasant know-how or hard outdoors living experience of their counterparts in the other armies. The Ottoman troops on the Crimea had it hard. They were drawing most of their rations from the British supply services, and this tended to include salt pork, which they couldn't eat due to their religious beliefs. Many who did try got sick, because if you don't know, going a long time without eating pork, then eating it is really bad for your digestive system. Many Turkish soldiers on the Crimea suffered from malnutrition. So yeah, I know U.S. soldiers will gripe about eating MREs, I'm guilty of that myself, but compared to thin cabbage soup and porridge, rancid meat and biscuit, or even the French rations, modern army chow doesn't look so bad anymore. I said a while back, I think in the Imjin War series, that a soldier in the field needs an average of around 3,600 calories per day for peak performance, rule of thumb. But calories alone aren't enough, that was the British mistake. You gotta have at least something like a balanced diet, with nutrients and vitamins to round out your daily intake. 
Armies throughout history have been limited by the need to transport food and also by its shelf life. Fruits and vegetables are important but very perishable. So is meat for that matter despite its high proportion of necessary fats and calories. So up until the modern period, most armies were issued carbs, some meat if they got the meat. The Roman soldiers' grain ration, the Japanese Ashigaru's rice ration, you name it. The Crimean War's rations weren't that much different from most military rations throughout history. Heavy on the carbs, emphasis on the meat, very low on all the other stuff, all the other nutritional needs. And over a long term, no soldier can macho or cool guy their way out of a caloric or nutritional deficit. Malnutrition and starvation in and of themselves do not usually result in military casualties. Very few soldiers actually starve to death in military history. But the deficits leave the body much more susceptible to disease and illness. And as we know, those were big problems in the Crimean War. Hard for your body to fight cholera or pneumonia when it barely has enough calories to run day-to-day operations like breathing, walking, or listening to your favorite podcast. Hopefully it's this one. But they were working on this stuff. The Industrial Revolution and the newfound respect for the common soldier encouraged the introduction of new ways to keep the troops nourished on the front line. Imagine some dudes on their patrol base in Iraq being given like sacks of flour and raw meat. You can't, right? Well, this is the point where that starts to no longer be a thing. And one of the people you have to thank is Alexis Soyer. Alexis Soyer was one of the most famous French chefs of his day, an out-and-out celebrity whose recipes and methods were celebrated across Europe. France was the birthplace of modern cuisine and fine dining in the early 19th century, and Soyer learned his trade in Paris restaurants before moving to England in the 1830s, introducing many innovations to English cooking. But Soyer was also a shining example of the rise of the lower classes in the reformist movement. He was just a dude from Paris who became an excellent chef. He was a passionate advocate for the common man, and his social work reflected that. Soyer launched a lot of charity relief efforts. He ran soup kitchens for the Irish during the Irish famine. And he wrote a cookbook in 1854 called Shillery Cooking for the People, which may be the first cookbook written for the lower classes. It contained recipes specifically designed to be made on a working class budget with the common utensils that every English family had. So when Soyer learned of the British soldiers' woes on the Crimea, he traveled to the warfront, to the Crimea, to introduce these innovations to the British army. Which is kind of crazy. It's like Gordon Ramsay going to Fallujah to teach American soldiers and American Marines how to cook their MREs. Imagine this goofball, a big pudgy French chef, riding around on a white pony with a pointed mustache, looking like a literal cartoon character. But he was a godsend to the soldiers on the Crimea. Soyer went to every British regiment, teaching them how to turn their raw rations into edible cuisine. And he also got Lord Raglan to start introducing more ration items like rice, sugar, coffee, and tea. By the summer of 1855, the old bread and meat thing was gone. The British soldier was increasingly better fed. Soyer invented recipes to be made from the British rations, with names like Camp Pot Al Fieu, Stewed Salt Beef and Pork a la Omer Pasha, and Cossack Plum Pudding. He also invented a new teapot for the British ranks, as well as a portable camp stove, the Soyer Stove, that the British Army would use for the next hundred years. He helped the British to organize collective cooking on the French model, changing the way rations would be cooked for the rest of military history. 
And of course, he ate at Mary Seacole's British Hotel and praised her Caribbean cooking to the high heavens. They even discussed having a cook-off between the two of them. Though this didn't end up happening, that would have been amazing. The French master chef versus the Creole healer? Battle for the ages. Where's the epic rap battles of history when you need them? But they were very friendly to each other. Soyer passed away in 1857, his health ruined by a fever he caught on the Crimea, but his innovations improved military rations for generations to come. And as the war continued, more and more preserved foods began to arrive for the armies on the Crimea. This was a very early process of canning and preservation invented by Nicolas Appert on the orders of Napoleon I, the OG Napoleon back in the turn of the century. Appert discovered that raising food to a high heat, then quickly sealing it in a glass jar, would keep it sterile and safe to eat, though he didn't know why germ theory hadn't been invented yet. Canned beef, pea soup, and other novelties helped feed the armies on the Crimea. Though they weren't really mass-produced yet, they were still not the bulk of the rations. That would have to wait for Louis Pasteur and the invention of modern hygiene. But we're on the verge of that. The Crimean War, the first modern war, was beginning to change the way soldiers ate. But it didn't really change how they drank. One of James Hauser's rules of thumb for history is, my general rule of thumb, people were always much, much drunker than you think. All the time. People were soaked, sloshed, canned, blasted, blotto, steaming, bladdered, loaded, swacked, shickered, besotted, and crapulous. A few examples. The ancient Egyptians who built the pyramids were provided with one and one-third gallons of beer per day as part of their wages. And we have the recipe. They've reproduced their ancient Egyptian recipe. It comes out to about 5% ABV, about the strength of Budweiser. That's a lot to drink in a day. Alexander the Great was famously an alcoholic, which made him even more violent than he was normally, which was pretty violent. The pilgrims sailed to the New World with a cargo hold full of ale. The founding fathers got sloshed during and after the Constitutional Convention. Napoleon went on campaign with carts full of French wine. What I'm trying to say, guys, is that the sheer apocalyptic consumption of alcohol has been a standard throughout most of history to a degree that still surprises me sometimes, almost irrespective of culture or region or religion. It is only in the last two centuries that people have really come to disapprove of heavy drinking, even drinking on the job, drinking day and night sometimes. Uh, And during the Crimean War, alcohol consumption went on at an absolutely unhealthy rate. See, I've been in the U.S. Army for about 10 years, and I have observed, as have many other people, that there is a drinking culture. I had to almost pick up and drag people inside our barracks in Korea on the 4th of July, sometime I think it was 2018, so they didn't spend all night in the grass after downing a 12-pack of Natty Light, which if you're going to drink, why would it be Natty Light? But this has been pretty common to militaries throughout history. That doesn't make it okay, but it makes it more understandable. One of the favorite hobbies of every army on the Crimea was drinking. And they drank a lot. In the 21st century, it would be unthinkable for soldiers to be tanking liquor or beer in the trenches under fire. You're not supposed to do that. But it was common outside Sevastopol. Each nation had their drink of choice. The sugar mills of the British Caribbean created the byproduct called molasses, which starting in the 1600s could be fermented and distilled into a fun drink called rum. Rum was the mainstay of the British Empire. Even pirates such as Captain Henry Morgan, whose image graces a popular rum brand today. 
and every British soldier on the Crimea, in addition to his bread and meat, was given a daily ration of rum. The three food groups, bread, meat, and rum. One soldier wrote his wife, We have two gills of rum a day, and I can assure you that if we had four gills of rum, it would be a godsend. A gill is four ounces, so the British were getting half a pint of rum per day as part of their rations, and they wanted more. If they ever got the chance, they would definitely buy more. Because in addition to the rum, the British also had access to large quantities of beer, mostly porter. Mary Seacole's British Hotel always ran a good booze business. She always had access to beer, wine, and liquor. Though she at least would cut people off when they'd had too much. Lots of other provisioners on the Crimea weren't so conscientious. The French drank enormous quantities of wine, both from their rations and sold by the vivandiers and cantiniers. The French army consumed a total of 2.5 million gallons of wine on the Crimea. The Russian soldier was given a daily vodka ration, and unlike the food rations, the officers knew better than to skimp on this. You mess with your soldier's vodka and there's going to be trouble. Even the Ottomans drank. The Prophet Muhammad in the Quran explicitly forbids alcohol, but hey, Jesus forbids a bunch of stuff in the Bible and Christians do it anyway. The Muslims are no different. The Ottoman soldiers drank sweet Crimean wine like it was water. Certain vines grew very well in the abandoned estates outside Sevastopol. And alcohol consumption wasn't just for R&R. It wasn't just what you did at the end of your shift. It was constant, persistent, during and after and before duty. Most soldiers had a good drink for breakfast and for dinner, and many drank throughout the day. Some soldiers were allegedly never sober for the entire 349 days of the Siege of Sevastopol. Henry Clifford, a staff officer in the British Light Division, said, Almost every regiment has a canteen, and at the door of each of these stood. No, they did not stand, for very few could, but lay and rolled about. Groups of French and English soldiers in every state of intoxication. Merry, laughing, crying, dancing, fighting, sentimental, affectionate, singing, talking, quarrelsome, stupid, beastly, brutal, and dead drunk. What a mistake to overpay a soldier. Let him be English, French, Turk, Sardinian, give him enough money, and he will get drunk. I mean, that just sounds like July 4th in a modern army barracks, as I just described. But this was beyond the point of being cool, fun, social drinking, classy drinking. This was hillbilly psycho crap. This was a problem. (laughs) The worst British drinking incidents were reported, coincidentally, during the height of the Siege of Sevastopol and its aftermath in summer and autumn 1855, when stress was at its highest and morale was at its lowest. Hmm, maybe that has something to do with it, right? And this had effects on military performance. Allied soldiers noticed that Russian officers got their soldiers good and tanked before battle. Many dead Russians at Inkerman were found with canteens half full of vodka. Literal liquid courage. Your officer's like, hey, you're going into battle. Let's get you boozed up so you're more compliant and you charge into fire more easily. Alcohol was used to numb fear and inhibitions, make soldiers more willing to go over the top into no man's land. In the Allied camp, drinking led to fights, indiscipline, insubordination, and occasionally even murder. Fully one-eighth of all British soldiers on the Crimea suffered some sort of punishment for drunken misbehavior. Some leaders were aware of the problems alcohol could cause. 
when Admiral Kornilov discovered a supply of vodka on the Sevastopol Wharf in those critical days after the Allied landing when every hour counted to prepare the city's defense, he ordered it destroyed. Like, nope, not, we're not even going to play with that. The Russian sailors weren't going to be stopped. They drank the liquor from the gutters with their hands. Why did armies tolerate this? Why did they allow this to go on? The easier question is probably to ask why modern armies don't. Am I, I'm, I'm not being facetious. This was the rule. This was the standard. Alcohol consumption in wartime was not a novelty. It was actually very common in the pre-modern age. It was considered to be part of a soldier's diet, a necessary component of morale, almost a given. The negative effects were considered the necessary evil compared to the positives. One British officer described rum as the only standby to keep the soldier on his legs at all, and a healthy vodka ration did more to motivate the Russian soldier than almost anything else. I honestly think a lot more research needs to be done on alcohol and warfare. There's a lot of hidden history to be found here, and I haven't found any great sources on this specific subject. I'm not even sure if there is a book on alcohol and warfare, a broad history. What stands out to me, especially for the Crimean War, and what's in sharp contrast to any modern attitudes, is the use of alcohol in combat situations and officers considering it to be a positive rather than a negative. I think a lot of men turn to alcohol basically to minimize the suck in those long periods of boredom and misery, punctuated by moments of sheer terror and destruction. There was an appeal to being numb to your surroundings and at least a little less aware of how terrible everything was. For many soldiers on the Crimea, alcohol was the only escape available, the only way to not have to think about tomorrow. Was it destructive and unhealthy? Oh yeah, oh lord yeah. Was it understandable? Also yeah. But alcohol was another old norm being reconsidered in the industrial age. This was the early... The early 19th century was the age of the temperance movement in Britain and America. The reformists in British society had a lot to say about the dangers of drink and its effect on the ignorant masses. Florence Nightingale was among these people who saw alcohol as one of society's great ills, and she cracked down sharply on drinking at her hospital in Scutari. Florence sent many of her nurses home when their alcohol abuse began to affect their work, and it seems like one of her main reasons for not being The biggest fan of Mary Seacole was that Mary sold alcohol to the soldiers. But even Florence had to allow a little bit, especially for wounded and dying servicemen. It might be pathetic to say it was all they had, but sometimes it really was. The alternative, going, you know, feeling all that pain at its most acute, sober, might seem even worse. Nowadays, if you're in the military, you go on deployment or you go to the field, and it is supposed to be dry. There are some professions especially, like driving a tank, flying a plane, where you cannot, should not have any alcohol whatsoever. It's going to be a very bad day for everyone if you do. But I've smelled alcohol in the breath of men in the field in my time in the army. And when I was overseas in the Middle East, soldiers were busted for making a distillery in their barracks. As long as men and women are in high-stress, monotonous, dire situations... They will look for an escape, and that escape will often be alcohol, whether the army allows it or not. I think the question for history and the modern day is less, do they get drunk? Yeah. And more, why do they get drunk? The first one is easy to answer. The second one is much harder. So if you are what you eat and drink, then the soldiers of the Crimean War were salt beef, bread, and liquor. And yeah, that kind of checks out. That's, that's a pretty good summary. But just like everything else about the Crimean War, the standard was changing. 
From this point on, armies would consume better food, more nutrients, and less booze, but they still will drink, to the point where when I go to the field, I eat a relatively nutritious MRE and drink zero alcohol. I, I don't see that as a productive thing to do when I'm actually carrying a rifle around or in my tank. This is in contrast to the armies of the Crimean War. The ration strength is greater and the liquid courage is less necessary. When my soldiers are back in garrison, though, well, I expect that I'll be dragging bombed-out servicemen back into the barracks for the rest of my time in. When it comes to soldiers, some things really don't change. <laughs> this is one case where history does kind of repeat itself. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If you've learned anything, it's that nutrition is actually kind of important, and men cannot live on bread and meat alone, something a lot of folks apparently need to learn. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it, but don't you dare touch their vodka ration. If you don't, tell your enemies. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources. I am always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect. You got advice, I'd love to hear it. I do plan to tackle this subject of rations and military rations much more down the road as I start talking about other campaigns. This is more of an introductory thing, more of a fit in the stuff that I didn't talk about in the Crimean War, but I will talk about it more. And guys, don't forget two things. First, the other short round is out on the field. This is about Imam Shamil, the Muslim guerrilla leader who defied the Tsars of Russia as Lord of the Caucasus. And we're almost at the end of the season. See you same place, same time next week for the final episode of Unknown Soldiers Podcast, Season 1.